welcome to the Heavenly Banquet with Charlotte and Chad and today we're going to talk about the inspiration of Scripture. In the last episode we talked about interpreting Scripture. In this episode we're going to focus on how these Scriptures are inspired. So as Christians we hold that the Scriptures are divinely inspired um, and why might we think that? Well, take for instance 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 where it says all scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Well, it says all scripture is inspired by God. The, the word being translated inspired there literally means God breathed, right? And so the idea is that the scriptures are somehow or another communicating um, God's will and intention to us. And so that's kind of the general topic for today. That's a really extraordinary claim, isn't it? I mean, I know we're focused on the inspiration part of this verse from Second Timothy, mm-hmm. but all scripture useful for teaching, for reproof, for connection, for training in righteousness. There's a lot of weird stuff in Scripture. I mean, this is one of those things that, you know, I look at and I go, oh, yeah, I believe that. Uh And then I think about it and I go, oh, uh uh-oh. Yeah. What a sweeping grand statement. But So the idea is that the Scriptures are inspired by God. For most of... Christian history, that was just taken for granted um, as a brute fact, and nobody was really thinking critical about it, about how does that work. And it's not that, you know, the early church or, or the church in the Middle Ages, obviously they all assumed that each book of the Bible, the letters and so on, were written by humans. They just didn't really seem to engage in this general question of how it works. You know, how does God inspire the scriptures um, through the human writers? Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, By the time we get to the Reformation, the Reformers want to elevate the scriptures to, you know, the place of prominence. Um, There's nothing in authority over the scriptures, not the church, not a tradition. It's scriptures or, you know, sola scriptura, so to speak. So think of Luther and his here I stand speech. Well, what's he standing on? He's standing on the scriptures, the, i.e. the word of God. Or John Calvin, for instance, uh, refers to the scriptures as the word of God. And he'll say, you know, we don't get daily oracles from heaven, so we treat the scriptures as if we're hearing, uh, as he puts it, the living words of God. So the words of scripture equal, you know, the word of God. But it's around this time of the Reformation and Renaissance that people start thinking a little more critically about how this works. How does the spirit inspire the scriptures through the human writers, I guess is one way to put it. And certainly... Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly by the time we start developing historical critical methods and it becomes clear that, you know, you can see human fingerprints 
you just compare the four Gospels, you can see differences in the different writers, even though they're using uh, a lot of the same material. And so now the question comes more to the forefront. How does inspiration of the scriptures work? Various models or theories have kind of been developed over time to kind of to think about the relationship between the divine and human and the process of inspiring the scriptures. I guess is one one way to think about it. And um, okay. if you if you Google biblical inspiration, you'll find categories similar to this. Um, so we'll just go through. I've got them in five different categories, and okay. they range they range along a spectrum. So at one end of the spectrum, the influence is completely on God's end. Humans aren't really doing anything in the process of writing the scriptures. They're just writing God's thoughts, I guess. And then on the other end, there's really no divine inspiration. It's all product it's a human pro purely human product and then you've got some in between we'll go through those okay and so what, I, what we'll try to do is kind of think of the happy takeaway for each one why would someone want to think about the scriptures in this way and then we'll talk talk about how terrible a theory it is <laughs> <laughs> like we always do That's Hold them right. up and tear them down sure right. all right so we'll start the first one, and I think this is first historically as well, is called the dictation theory. And the idea is just as how it sounds, that God dictates the words, the ideas. Everything in Scripture is dictated through the human authors. So I think the idea is the Holy Spirit communicates to the mind of the author the words and ideas. Um, you see this, you know, from the Reformation Renaissance on, but it pretty much falls out of favor by the 19th century. So, and I think for good reason, because it's just kind of hard to figure out how that would work. But the key is that it's wholly divinely inspired. There's really no human agency at work in the production of the scriptures. Mm -hmm. So what do you think the happy takeaway of that would be, Charlotte, if any? I think that folks who subscribe to this would say something about they've really elevated the authority of Scripture through this right. understanding, right? So there's no, because they have erased any idea of human agency, then when we really are talking about Scripture as being completely uh, infallible, inscrutable, etc., and that that's a comfort to folks like that, I guess. Yeah, I think that that would be kind of the main motivation to, you know, like you say, lift up the authority to secure its inerrancy. There's no errors, so we can trust it completely. Um, yeah, I think that's the basic idea. And I think that's why it kind of shows and, up. Go ahead. Oh, well, and I was going to say, and within Scripture itself, we do have instances of God saying yeah. um, to the prophets in particular, I think, but kind of write this, say this, um, right. let this be, this is my word kind of things. And, um, and you seem, and we have depictions of God using people in that way. Um, so it's not completely wild. I guess that, you know, as a child, I think I thought about the scriptures only this way. And even like, when there, there's images in my mind that must be from, you know, some 
something I saw in Sunday school or something even of kind of like, you know, the spirit hand, like holding the person's hand uh, even, yeah. you know, and kind of moving pen on paper. Um, yeah. But that that's how, how these, these things came to be, which is wild and wonderful. Yeah, you're right. So there are those places. And, but you'd have to wonder, well, how does that work for Paul, for instance, when he's writing a letter? I th- it, there's just clearly so much of Paul in it. Well, Paul will say in certain instances, this is not from the Lord, but it's from me. Right, right. That would be kind of a weird dictation. Right. <laughs> this is what I do. This is what I say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we have a problem here, too, with the, we're trying to say that human agency isn't involved and it's like scripture is unique, authoritative, and in some way sort of not mediated because there Mm -hmm. isn't a human intervention, but it is because it's always going to be um, God or the word uh, condescending to take on human language. So the very fact that God is speaking through uh, language, human speech, mm-hmm. rather than whatever it is that God does within God's self, is a mediation that right. God is using that tool to communicate with us, um, and is choosing and is limited by the limits of human speech, by the limits of uh, human co- a human construct. Yeah. Uh, yeah, in some ways. So uh, I'm gonna. I got questions. Yeah. Okay. No, good observation. God has a a lot of explaining to do then also about this dictation because, you know, there's, there's some that I'm going to ask, you know, why did, why didn't God, why did God change tenses in the middle of this sentence? (laughs) um, What's up with God's grammar? man? Yeah. No, I, I understand how this is, this is comforting and this is, how it again presented to me as a child, but um, it, it it brings up too many questions in my mind to be appealing. Okay, so that's the dictation theory, um, which, as I mentioned, it kind of runs out of favor by the 19th century. Why? Well, because of historical critical methods really draw out the human aspect of the scripture. So. In that context, the second uh, model or theory we'll talk about is called the verbal plenary theory. Mm-hmm. Um, verbal plenary, meaning all the words are inspired, all the ideas and word are inspired by God, but somehow it saves human agency. That the human agency... The human agency is working in that. I guess the human agency and divine inspiration work together to come to the same thing. I'm not real sure how it works. But it's kind of like a head nod to human agency saying, look, we realize human, real people uh, wrote these documents and they're not just uh, robots dictating. So uh they're both somehow true every word and idea is divinely inspired and yet it doesn't abrogate human agency i feel like i must not understand this um which is which is the issue and maybe i don't and maybe somebody's yelling right now uh about we have this wrong some way but i mean i've looked too and this is what you're presenting seems fair 
more than fair to me. Um, but if I mean, the end result, I mean, it seems like an accurate representation representation okay. of what it is, is what I'm saying. But if the end result is every word is the word that God means for it to be, then I don't understand a real distinction between this and dictation. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. To me, it's just a head nod to human agency without really giving room for it. And, you know, I would say the happy takeaway is exactly the same. You can rest secure that uh, it's all God's word to you and there's, you know, it's inerrant. There's no errors. There's no human influence to throw a wrench in it in any way. Uh, Some folks might see various Reformed confessions uh, supporting this view, the Westminster Confession of Faith, Helvetic Confession, um, and it's still very popular among evangelicals, this particular view. Because again, it, it, it's, it saves um, the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture. Is so that's a, more of a nod to like the editing process? Say a little, <laughs> say a little more. Say a little more about that. <laughs> yeah, let me go ahead and talk myself into a corner. I mean, is that the distinction rather than just a dictation? Is this assuming, like, maybe is making room for the fact that there are multiple and different manuscripts, etc., and that maybe something was written down by humans, but other humans, God is using inspiration to edit those works? I don't know. Choose every word more better? I don't know. I have seen proponents of this position argue that it only applies to the original manuscripts, none of which are extant. extant. Yeah. So I don't even know. That's a weird claim. Yeah. I mean, you can't claim things about things that we don't have, can you? Well, you can. It just can't be disproven. And so... Oh, yeah, yeah. Fuck, you're right. That's the logic problem. I got it. It can't be disproven, so you can say, well, you can't prove it's wrong. Well, that sounds nice. Yeah, okay. (laughs) So, yeah, they're very much alike, dictation and verbal plenary. Um, I think the verbal plenary, again, I think those who held, and uh, Domenico Bagnez comes to mind, he really wanted to say there's just no human influence. I think those who are home to verbal plenary want to say there's human influence, but like you say, they look exactly the same. Looks like the same thing's happening. So those are the first two. The third model or theory is the dynamic inspiration theory. And the idea is that the concepts are divinely inspired. Take a concept like, I don't know, um, justification by faith or justification in general. The concepts are divinely inspired, but the words used to convey them are fully human. So I think the idea is God is inspiring the human writer to write out in the human's own words the divine intent. I think the happy takeaway there is you're still securing the divine inspiration, but you're allowing for actual human agency. I think this seems to maybe capture, I don't know, maybe capture something of that issue or the reality of the divine word 
condescending to human speech, mm-hmm. right? So it's using the human writer or the community as um, that mediator and is recognizing that, yeah. right? Or am I I'm giving it too much credit? I think so. I mean, yeah. So the meaning, the meaning is always divine, but the words may be imperfect because that's the human agency part. Yeah, or you could have two different writers talking about the same thing in different ways, but they're talking about the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So it's dynamic in yeah. that sense. So what would you say the happy takeaway is it, it kind of meets the need for human agency and preserves divine inspiration, something? Maybe. Well, I think it recognizes the reality, you know, mm-hmm. kind of regardless that whether mediated by uh, human agency, mediated by human language, that there's something, there's something between between God and us uh, in in this reception of the word. And I like, I mean, I'd like some at least nod to human agency. If we understand the Bible or scripture as the story of our relationship with God, then then we're historically and as a people of faith part of that story. So I, I'm not as comfortable with views that sort of erase us from the process, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, if it's, you know, even the story of, you know, God's covenant with Israel, well, it's a covenant, right? So it's, so why would the people just end up, you know, erased or have no voice in there whatsoever? Okay. So that's the third one. The fourth one is... Partial inspiration theory. And this isn't so much how the relationship works between divine inspiration and human agency. It's really just an acknowledgement. Well, let me explain it. So the idea of partial inspiration theory is whatever is needed for faith and practice is infallible. Whatever pertains to history and science can be wrong. There are errors, historical errors, scientific errors, um, and so on. So you might say the spiritual import is infallible. And by the way, let me insert this in here very quickly, because I think this is confusing. There's generally a a difference understood between the infallibility of Scripture and the inerrancy of Scripture. Those who claim Scripture is infallible are usually going to take this position, that it's infallible in terms of faith and practice, but not necessarily inerrant. Those who hold an inerrancy position are usually going to, you know, be a verbal plenary or dictation kind of person. You know, they're going to want no errors of any kind. So it doesn't, I think the idea is it doesn't have to be historical, historically accurate, but it has to communicate or it can communicate something worthy in terms of faith and practice. Or take the opening chapters of Genesis. It doesn't have to be a one-for-one correlation with how things actually unfolded, but it presumably communicates certain spiritual truths. So, you know, God is the creator, creation is good, humanity is created in divine image. Um, all of that can be infallible in terms of faith and practice, and yet, you know, the, it not be a, you know, creation not happen as unfolding in six 24-hour days or whatever. Does that make sense? Oh, okay. I think I, I misunderstood it. That makes sense. Sure. Sure. I'm on so it's board not that, that some, sure. some parts are accurate and some hmm. parts are, are not. It's that 
same passage, you know, can be seen on two different levels, the historical scientific level or the... And, you know, as we talked about last week, there's going to be plenty of passages we're going to hold to be both historically accurate and have spiritual import. Oh, right. Sure. Yeah. Okay, well, I've warmed up to this then. (laughs) Okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the fourth one. The last one is... uh, Cause it's, okay, I'm sorry. Let me go back here. Because it's okay. more telling me that's not a stumbling block, that there are problems in Scripture. Right. Right. And, I mean, the, the, can I take that as more the gist? That that shouldn't stop you. That what's really important is always the spiritual meaning or the, the part that pertains to faith. Um, Christ, yeah. So don't let, you know, the depiction of the natural world or the histories or other kind of issues that you might find there stop you from still seeking the divine message behind that that pertains to faith, et cetera, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I I think that's the idea. The last one is what we'll call the human intuition theory. So this is the idea that there really isn't, there is no divine inspiration, but human intuition, especially of uh, maybe some particularly spiritual people, communicate spiritual truths. For instance, we might say uh, Paul. It's not that God's inspiring Paul or the Holy Spirit's inspiring Paul, but Paul's just really hitting on some good stuff because he's in touch. I don't know. What would you think the the happy takeaway might be of that one, Charlotte? It's not really a theory of inspiration, is it? (laughs) No. I mean, I guess, uh, I guess. Okay, it's going to recognize the multiple voices we have in Scripture, mm-hmm. right? The multiple genres, the fact that different kind of artists and writers uh, talking about their experience of God through history or through their faith understanding. Um, but then how would that make Scripture distinct from any other writing about the faith? How would that make Scripture distinct from the work of the mystics or uh, poetry or prayers or anything that I construct. Yeah, I think it, I think it just removes the Holy Spirit out of the picture altogether. Well, I'm a little troubled though by this. You know, if if it is talking about human intuition, isn't that also the place where I it's guess perfect. in my mind I've placed the spirit somehow or some kind of contact because that always feels. An experience of intuition, I think, as a sense sometimes of an outside voice. I mean, it's your own inner voice, but of a second uh, person uh, somehow offering an insight in some way. So I kind of, I guess I'm a little annoyed. Why not just go ahead and call that even? Inspiration. Um, Yeah, inspiration. I don't know. I mean, it helps with things like Paul's letters. Mm -hmm. And, you know, who frames this stuff? you know, I try to find intuition theory. Who came up with that? I don't know. I'm inclined to say it's people who aren't, who are probably on the more verbal plenary theory end of things. <laughs> so it's a caricature of, uh, you know, perhaps a more liberal approach to the scriptures or a more critical right. approach to the scripture. I don't know. I'm kind of like you. I Well, I don't know if I'm kind of like you. I, what you said about why isn't that intuition 
inspiration and why wouldn't the Holy Spirit be involved? I mean, to me, they're inspired. So I'm probably going to land somewhere more around dynamic theory or partial inspiration, somewhere in that area myself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because I, I do hold the scriptures to be inspired, but I also know there are issues. <laughs> so I don't know. But I do think there's inspiration. So if, if the idea of human intuition is that there's absolutely no divine inspiration. I'm probably not going to be able to get on board with that myself. Yeah, I just, I don't see how I could claim that and then, and also claim scripture as being unique and authoritative as opposed to anything else. But I mean, I'm sure there are people who do think that. So, yeah. um, but why do we call, you know, the canon as we've received it, uh, unique and authoritative as opposed to works like the shepherd or the Didache or first Clement, yeah. which are certainly no one is, no one would dispute that those are written by people of faith of good mm -hmm. faith. And that are closely connected to our understanding of faith. It's not that those things got rejected by some sense of heterodoxy. So this is confusing to me or, or maybe, maybe this then is going to, uh, promote a more open canon than two, and okay. say we should we should be including all of these other things then. Because why would people have stopped hitting on some good stuff, <laughs> as you say? <Yeah. laughs> nice. Do you have any um? Do you have any other thoughts? Part of where I am is like I guess I don't worry about this. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the thing. I mean, is there, is is this really something we need to? Is how important, you know, the whole God side of the equation is completely not our experience. So why are we even, can't we just accept it's inspired and move on? I don't know. Yeah, so I think your your instinct is probably right, or your intuition is probably <laughs> right, that these categories are more bolstered by your, the dictation or verbal plenary theory crowd to sort of mock historical critical method and, you know, other tools, views of scripture and interpretation to say that they're not as high or authoritative. Though, you know, what else is at risk here is making a God out of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And that that idolatry around scripture is its own issue as well. That yeah. by taking, also, I think by taking some kind of human experience or human intervention or human agency out of scripture of a sense that's also helping those people promote interpretations of scripture, et cetera, that are also devoid of the human experience that dismiss the very real ramifications those interpretations will have on people's lives and in hurtful ways. And I think that crowd also seems to have this kind of one-to-one relationship or understanding between word of God and scripture, word of God as Christ. And I, that's absurd to me. I think the identification of the two, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is so touching on your point. We equivocate with the phrase word of God. We use it in relation to the scriptures, when we refer to the scriptures as the word of God, we refer to Christ as the word of God. But those two things are not the same thing at all. 
And, and why do I say that? I don't, I don't want to get too technical here, but two things are identical if they share exactly the same properties, which the Bible and Christ don't. I mean, we wouldn't say the Bible died for our, our sins or we don't worship the Bible. So obviously, we're using the Word of God in an equivocal sense about two things that are significantly different. Um, and so what is the relationship of the Scriptures as the Word of God to Christ as the Word of God? I would say the relationship is a relationship of means to end, right? The scriptures are inspired as a means to bring us to some working knowledge of Christ and, and the faith and um, practice. But the burden of bringing us to faith is not the burden of the scriptures, it's the burden of the Holy Spirit. And I think one, one problem is people want the scriptures to be perfect so that they can be trusted to communicate the truth. But I would say that's the work of the Holy Spirit. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's the end that actually needs more uh, attention as far as talking about inspiration is interpretation or understanding, right? And I think, you know, Augustine says something about sort of interpreting scriptures, both discipline, study, and requires supernatural aid, that the act of reading or interpreting scripture is an act of faith. Right. And so people outside of the faith can read the scriptures of our faith and they can glean some understanding and they may glean more understanding because as we see in scripture, God can talk to and uses people outside of the faith all of the time. Mm -hmm. um, but that a reading of scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit through our faith. And, and like we were talking about last week in interpreting Scripture, there are bounds. You know, the rule of love, for instance, love of God and love of neighbor. I mean, if the Scriptures, if their primary function is to bring us to an understanding and knowledge of Christ, then it makes sense that then Christ becomes kind of the interpretive key to interpret the Scriptures. You know, what is right. the relationship between Scriptures as the Word of God and Christ as the Word of God? The authority lies with the living Lord. <laughs> Right. You know, there's that interesting passage in the um, Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you know, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. That eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth ethic goes back to Hammurabi's law, but it shows up in the Old Testament in three or four places. Um, probably the most brutal instance is Deuteronomy 19.21 where it says, show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And so you clearly have an instance where Jesus is asserting his authority over uh, one statement of Scripture. And so, you know, when he says, but I say to you. So I think there is, um, if we're going to talk about authority, the authority, the Scriptures are authoritative, but they're authoritative because of the risen Lord, right? Right. I also think, you know, there's an issue with the equivocation of Word of God with and Christ as the Word, Word of God and Scripture, and Christ as Word of God. Mm -hmm. I think often also reduces Word or Logos to like a word, like human speech, uh -huh. rather than that being sort of Logos as like the blueprints for the universe. Yeah, yeah I mean, the organizing the, the, principle of the universe, right. Yeah, so, and that is a way different thing, <laughs> a way different claim, both on who Christ is, right, mm -hmm. 
and and scripture as the word. So if we're only looking at word of God as the way that we understand how the word word is used in human language, then we are talking about dictation or mm-hmm. something like it. We're talking about each word mattering. When we're talking about word of God as logos, then we're talking um big ideas and big pictures and the fabric of our existence stuff, uh, which I think also raises us above then those issues, you know, whatever issues there may be in scripture around uh, scientific principles, uh, around history, um, and is saying that's not the point here. Word of God is not whatever little uh, piddly things we're going to argue about within scripture. Yeah, when you... When you begin with Christ as a word and Logos kind of the organizing principle of everything, or as you put it, the blueprint of creation, that really widens the scope of what we mean by word of God versus going back to like a dictation or plenary that God's words are actual words on a page. And even though that can happen, that's certainly, like you said, it reduces it to that, which I, yeah, I agree very flattened way of seeing scripture, not, not robust at all. <laughs>